If you haven't been with us, we've been walking through this story of the Bible, uh, starting in Genesis. As Lisa said, we're working to the end in Revelation. We're seeing how the story all fits together to tell this one grand story of God and his people and the way he's reconciled us to himself in Jesus. And the Bible makes the most sense when it's understood as one single story. Now, if you've missed or you haven't been here or you're in and out, um, we uh, online, peninsulagrace.org, we have all of our sermons. You can download those. You can actually listen, watch, look at the PowerPoints as well. Um, and then on your iPhone or Android, go to the, your uh, app store, your uh, podcast store, and you can listen to them right on your device. So you have no excuse for me not to be with you in the car, at home, at work. I'm everywhere, right? Um, but so anyway, as you know, we've been walking through this story. And so far, we've seen these are our guideposts, kind of walking us through the story, helping it make it cohesive. And so far, see if we can remember our, our current uh, motions. We've got motions with each one of these. So we've got God. We've got creation, we've got the fall, and we've got the promise, right? The pinky promise. Today, we, we've seen so far that God is good, and he made everything good. But Adam and Eve, they sin. They trust themselves instead of him. And now there's a fracture in, in the relationship between God and man. There's a sin problem. But the promise that God makes to them is, I'm going to send you a deliverer, someone who's going to save you from this mess and bring you, more importantly, back to me. And we saw last week the results of the fall, that they have these children, but they're sinners just like Adam and Eve. And everybody who's been come from Adam and Eve, and that's every one of us, is born into sin. And, and, and we saw that with Cain and Abel. Cain murders his own brother because Abel's offering was accepted and his wasn't. Because Abel came by faith in God and that God could save him, whereas Cain came expecting God to save him on the merits of his own offering. So he kills his own brother. And we're going to see today, as the earth is populated, as the population grows, sin spreads with it because they're all sinners. And we're going to look today at the flood. So everybody hold your nose, put your hand up in the air, and we're going down. All right? (laughs) So we've got God, we've got creation, we've got fall, we've got promise, and then we've got the flood. All right? Now, we joke about that, but as we know, this is a catastrophic thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's, I walked the line of the irreverence, but here we go. Um, so chapter 10, we're going to talk about Noah. This is our 10th um, part in this series, and um, we're going to be looking at 6 through 9. We're going to start to make some quicker progress. We spent four weeks in Genesis 3. We said we'd be here for, you know, 100 years if we went at that pace. We're going to start picking up the pace in the story as we go here. So um, as you know, Adam and Eve, they had two sons initially, Cain and Abel. Abel is now dead. God, in in Genesis chapter 4, he says, Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. She gave him, she named him Seth, for she said, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. Now, don't miss this. God is going to, we're going to see in this story, he's going to preserve a line that the deliverer is going to come from. Remember, there's going to be the offspring of Eve is going to, it's going to be a human born that's going to deliver us from our sin. And, 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 and it looks like it was probably going to be Abel, but Abel's dead. So in his place, God gives a substitute, and he gives Seth. And it's going to be from the line of Seth that this deliverer comes. And what we're going to see here is in Genesis chapter 5, we're not going to look at it this morning, but you go through there, and it gives us a list of Seth's descendants from Seth down to Noah. And this is over the course of about 1,500 years. If you do the math, which I let someone else do for me. Um, it's about 15. Now, it's possible that they don't give us every single person. There might be some genealogical gaps there. 
but what we know is it's at least 1,500 years between Adam and Noah, all right? And what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the story of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9, and we're going to see three things. We're going to look at the sin of man and how rampant it's become. We're going to look at God's solution to this sin problem in this story, and finally, we're going to see a beautiful, secure promise that he gave to Noah, and that can give us hope and rest for today. So let's dive in. Man's sin. Um, Genesis chapter 6, if you got your Bible, um, you can look it with us. Verses will be on the screen as always. Um, We're going to look at the rebellious heart of man. Genesis 6 chapter 5, this is in the New Living. I try to indicate in parentheses what versions we're looking at because I jump around sometimes. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness and on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. That's not a pretty picture. Verse 11, now God saw the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. I've underlined words to show the saturation of evil on the planet. Imagine a world that is full of violence and evil and corruption. It's not that hard to imagine, is it? Because we live in that world today. And so God, and it's not, number one, there's, it's evil. The world is all evil because we're all sinners and all we can do is sin. But then the second part that we want to underline and see here is that it did not go without God noticing it. It says he observed the extent of human wickedness. He saw everything was evil. He saw the earth was corrupt. He observed all the corruption. God sees everything. Both the outward action and the inward motive of the heart, okay? He's like your mom. You know, moms see everything, and you think you're getting, you're in the back of the car, and you poke your sibling, and I saw that. You go, how did she, and you're thinking, like, man, she's so annoying, and she's like, I heard that. Like, how did you hear that? It was in my head. Moms are magic. Like, I don't know what they, what, what they're drinking, but I want some. They, so moms, they see everything. God sees everything, but it's not just that he's aware it's not just that God knows it all and you can't slip one past the holy goalie, right? The, the, the reality is God not only sees it, but he cares about us. And, and that God pays attention with a loving interest. And we see this in verse 6. Look at what it says. Here's God's reaction to man's rebellion. And the earth, the Lord, ESV says, regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, I want you to notice this. The word regretted here can be translated repented. Your version might have it that way. Now, the word repent means to change one's mind. So we're asking ourselves, is God saying he made a mistake? Is he like, man, I thought this was going to be awesome. Man was going to hang out with me. It's going to be all good. And then they messed up. And man, I wish there was a plan B. I can't believe I messed up there. We know from scripture, we've already talked about it, God does not change. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord and I do not change. He lives outside of time. He sees all of eternity past and eternity future. This did not throw God off. This did not go outside of his sovereignty and his awareness. So what's going on here? The word regretted or repented, the root there in Hebrew is to sigh or to breathe heavily. So here's what's going on. God sees this evil, this extensive evil throughout the world, and he looks at it, and his reaction is, exactly, exactly. Thanks for somebody sighing for me. Um, I love the way the New Living translates this. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. You catch that. 
we often view God, our image of God, as some cold administrator of justice, right? Just John Wayne walking down Main Street, and he's just like, sinner, pew, right? Dude cheats on his wife, pew, right? Stole something, pew, eating gluten, pew, 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 right? Like just, I'm going to take him out. And we, we have this image of this vengeful madman who just gets this sick thrill over smoking cr- people. Like some kind of God whack-a-mole where he's just like smashing people as they pop up and do evil. And he's just, it just makes him laugh. Like that's not our God. And that's not what we see here in verse 6. The tone, it's sadness, and it's heartbreak. I mean, you think about it from God's perspective. He's looking at this constant betrayal. He says, you're betraying me. You're rebelling against me. You're spitting in my face. You're looking to other things to satisfy you than me, and it breaks my heart. We put it in human terms. He goes, man, I wish I had never made them. In the same way that Job... When he faces all the devastation, he goes, man, I wish I had never been born. This is an emotional statement. And we see this in Ezekiel 33. I love this verse. This is as surely as, the, as I live, says the sovereign Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I take no pleasure. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, Israel. He, 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 he must punish because he's just. But he says, it doesn't give me any sick thrill to do it. I want you to turn. I want you to come back with me. I want you to have that relationship with me that I created you for. And Jesus experiences the same thing, Luke chapter 19. But as he came closer to Jerusalem, talking about Jesus, he saw the city ahead and he began to weep. Why is Jesus weeping? Because he knows the destruction that is coming toward Jerusalem imminently. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings. It breaks his heart because he knows the destruction that's coming. God is not changing his mind here. In fact, it's because God never changes that he is so grieved. Because as a just God, he must punish this extensive evil. But it breaks his heart to do so and to see these sinners turn. And you know, with Jesus in our hearts, our our attitude toward people, toward sin, should be the same with Christ in us. Sin should break our hearts to see people spitting in the face of our glorious God, of our Savior, to see the tragic consequences in this world of sinful decisions. I remember one time I was in missionary uh, training, and a missionary, a missionary, okay, these are supposed to be the good ones. He said to me, it was, it was pretty, it was only a couple years after 9-11 and it happened, and I remember he was sitting there talking with us, and he was talking about the Middle East, and he goes, man, I wish we could just press a button and just nuke the entire Middle East. Just take them all out. I thought, do you hear what you're saying? You want to just obliterate an entire section of the globe, men, women, and children. And how often do we have this hard heart towards sinners? And I look at the, the, the attitude of the church against the homosexual community, against liberals, right? Uh, against all these people, against drug addicts, what, whatever, you know, whatever it is, and we get, we, our hearts toward them are not what God's heart is toward them. I'm not saying that we, we start accept being fine with sin, but our hearts, like God's, should break for the lost. 
We should lavish our love upon them. We should point them to Jesus. Our speech should be seasoned with grace and point them to the one who can save them from their sins. Not judgment and wrath. Heartbreak. That's God's reaction toward the sinful world that he sees. So then here's God's solution. And as we know, you know the story if you've been in church, the flood. The flood comes, Genesis 6 verse 7, he says, And the Lord said, I will wipe out the human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing. And again, he reiterates at the end of the verse, I'm sorry I ever made them. So God is going to wipe out all of humanity with this worldwide flood. It's his solution to, to human wickedness is just to remove the humans. Now make no mistake... The people deserve this. This is justice. But it broke God's heart to send the flood. Even though it's a just consequence, this man didn't, God didn't make man sin. God doesn't want man to sin. But as a just God, he must punish. He gives man a choice. Hey, listen, you can trust me and my promises to save you, or you can put your trust in yourself. But there is always consequence for failure to believe God. And that consequence is death. It's separation. In eighth grade, I, uh, I went on a bluff jumping trip with my class. I actually ran into the teacher that took us to this trip this last week. And I remember um, we were, so it was about 30 foot jump and we were just, you know, this is what Alaskans do for fun. And so we're jumping off this bluff and a lot of the girls in the class were scared. Okay. It's a long jump. So I come walking up there. Watch out ladies. Let me show you how it's done. So I gather myself, take a run, take a jump, 30 feet down, land on a hard patch of sand right on my tailbone. Freeze up. I think I'm paralyzed. They have to cart me away to the ER. I've got an S shape in my spine. And from that point forward, I've walked like I have a stick located somewhere. Okay. Um, I'm going to get an email from the elders on that one. So... If I defy the laws of gravity, there are consequences. Consequences that I'm still paying to this day. And in the same way, defying God's law, okay? Spitting in his face saying, I'm going to do what I want to. There is always consequence. And in this case, the consequence is a global flood. But there's always a beautiful but. It's not mine, right? I'm going to get more emails. Here we go. Didn't God make a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden? He said that the woman's seed is going to crush the head of the serpent, right? That was the promise. Now, that's hard to do if all of the seed has been washed down this earth-sized bathtub. You can't save man if there's no man. So how is God, if we know God, one of the first things we said in this study is that God is always faithful to his promises. So how does God remain faithful to his promise if he wipes everyone out? And that's why verse 8 is so crucial to this story. Verse 8, but Noah found favor with God. Noah found favor with God. Now look at verse 9. This is interesting. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Now, time out. I thought we just discussed that the entire world is sinful, that everyone's born into sin, that everyone who came from Adam and Eve is born separate from God and by nature children of wrath. So what is going on here? 
Did the stork accidentally drop Noah off in the garden? Like, did he, is he giving him a chance that everybody, did, you know, did Noah figure out this way to, to be righteous? What, what is the going on here? Well, just like in Hebrews 11. Remember last week we said that the New Testament can sometimes give us revelation into these stories. And, and we saw that what Abel, why Abel was accepted because of his faith, because of his, what he offered. In the same way, Hebrews 11 gives us some insight into Noah. If you look at this, Hebrews 11, verse 6. It says, and it is impossible to please God without faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. So what we know is if this verse is true, and I believe that it is, the only way that Noah can please God is that he had faith. He had faith. And in fact, verse 7 tells us that he did. He, referring to Noah, received the righteousness meaning that he's right in God's sight, he received the righteousness that comes by works. Know what it says? No. It says he received the righteousness that comes by faith. And that's why, he's, that's why he is declared right. It's because of his faith. So two things here I want us to note that come from Noah's faith. First one is that Noah's faith found him favor with God. Look at what it says, verse 8. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Now, the word favor here, it would actually be better translated grace. In fact, if you have a King James version, that's exactly what it says. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. This is the first time that the word grace is mentioned in the Bible. And it's, it's so cool here. If you know uh, grace, it means, it means God's undeserved favor. God giving us something we don't deserve. So for example, if I try to hire somebody from the youth group to come, if I come up to who's it, Toad, if I say to Toad, hey, I want you to come over and I want you to clean my apartment. Okay, I'm very lazy, or I'm very busy. I'm a pastor. I got a lot of things to do. I need you to clean my apartment. He does it, and at the end of it, I pay him. Is that grace? That's not grace. I'm paying him for what he deserves. He did a good job, and so I pay him. But if I walk up to Toad and I say, Here, Toad, here's a hundred dollars. This is hypothetical, okay? <laughs> that he didn't do anything to deserve that. I just gave it to him because he's a good looking guy, right? I, I just I handed it to him completely unmerited. That, that, is, that is grace. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. And that's exactly what's going on here. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and I love the way the New Living says it. God saved you by his grace when you believed through faith. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. You see what he's saying? I love the way Warren Wearsby words it. The only way people can be saved from God's wrath is through God's grace. The only way that Noah is saved, the only reason he is spared, is by the grace of God. Based on what? His faith. He believes God is going to save him. Grace is not a reward for a a good life. If that's the case, none of us would receive it. It's a response to God's saving faith. So to be clear here, We see that Noah's a sinner, just like the rest of us. There's no difference. He's no more lost, no more broken, no less lost, no less broken than any one of us. But like Abel, he has faith in God and trusts God's promise. God promised him that he is going to deliver mankind, that he is going to provide a way, and Noah trusts God. He trusts him, he believes him. And you know what, listen, I don't think this is totally random. I don't think Noah just made this decision to trust God. I think if you look in Genesis 5, there's some clues to perhaps how he got here. If you look at this line in Genesis chapter 5, 
What's very interesting, you go back to the, the last verse in chapter 4. It says, when Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. Now we see from Cain's descendants, what did we look at last week? There's polygamy, there's murder. Okay, a lot of Cain's descendants follow Cain's footsteps. But as we walk through Genesis 5, the line of Seth, we see Enoch. Enoch is said to walk with God. We actually see Enoch in our Hebrews 11 passage. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. Him and Elijah are the only two in the Old Testament that don't face physical death. And that's because of his faith. And then we look at Lamech, who's Noah's father... We see him, it's recorded that he cries out to God for help. So here we see this line of people coming from Cain who are trusting God. And I wonder, and we're doing some some guesswork here, but is Noah coming from a line that believes God? And in the same way that our sinful actions can spread to our children, I think our example of faith can be passed on as well. Now listen, we're not in control of our children, and, and we know some of you know that better than others. And we can't force them to love God, to worship God, to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus. But we can give them an example of faith. And they make a huge, make an enormous difference. So Noah's faith found him favor with God. And number two, Noah's faith produced obedience. Watch this. Genesis 6.14. God gives him very, very specific instructions. He tells him the kind of material he wants him to build the boat. He tells him the measurements he wants him to build the boat with. He, or like He tells them how to bring the animals onto the ship. He's very, very specific about how he wants this thing to be constructed. He says, if you want to be saved from this flood, you must do exactly what I tell you to do. And it's crazy to see, they actually look at this, um, the, this boat. This is, a, this is an actual, if you've heard about this boat, this ark, the exact replica has been built in Kentucky to scale, 450 feet long. It's called the Ark Encounter, kind of like a Jesus amusement park, which I don't know, there's things to think about there. Um, but uh, they, build this, they built this ark exactly to scale. Now, the crazy thing is that there has been, as far as we have recorded, from when the time when Noah built this ark, there was no boat built to this kind of size until 1844 A.D., when a ship called the Great Britain was constructed. So thousands of years go by, and we have not seen a boat. We had not seen a boat built of this magnitude. But God tells him exactly how He wants him to build the boat. He gives him very specific instructions, and we see this often in Scripture, don't we? God giving us painstaking detail. Okay, you read through the boring parts of Exodus and Leviticus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you do a Bible through the year thing, and you're like, how many chapters is he going to tell us about the, how to make the gold rings for the outer tur- curtain of the temple, and exactly what they're supposed to wear, and exactly the kind of animal and how they're going to kill it? Why is God doing that? Why is he giving them such specific direction? I think God is showing us, he's teaching us a principle. If you want to come to me, you must come my way. You must come exactly like I've commanded you to come. But here's the cool thing I love about God, is that he communicates that. He communicates with man. He tells us what we need to know in order to come to him. He told Adam and Eve in the garden, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you'll die. He told Cain and Abel how to come to him by faith. He doesn't tell Noah, dude, the flood's coming. Good luck, buddy. Figure it out. He gives him the exact instructions. He says, if you want to be saved, you must do this. And Noah believes God. He believes God's going to deliver him, and so he obeys. Look at verse 22 of chapter 6. So Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. He follows 
exactly what God has instructed. Now, this teaches us the lesson that faith produces obedience, okay? And I word that very carefully. Hebrews chapter 11, we go back there, verse 7. It was by faith, it was by faith, it was by faith, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. I want us to catch this. There's an important distinction. God accepted Noah because of his faith, and that faith produced obedient ark building. It is not that Noah built this awesome ark, and God just is like, man, that ark is amazing. I can't help but save you. Do you see the distinction there? And that's all of Hebrews 11. You read through the chapter. By faith, he did this. By faith, she did that. Their obedience is spawned from their faith. And and this is such an important distinction for us to understand. We are sinners. And as sinners, we can do nothing but sin. There's nothing you and I can do to please God. We've already seen examples of this in this story. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, tried to cover up their sin with their own fig leaves. And we see that God rejected them. Then we saw Cain try to come to God his own way by making this killer veggie tray. And he goes, look, God, look how awesome this thing is. And God rejects it. And we've got to understand, we can try to cover up our sin from God. We can try to knock his socks off with our church attendance and our sparky jewels. But, but no amount of good works are going to impress God. And he rejects our fig leaves. He rejects the vegetables. He rejects our own ark building. And just like there was one way onto that ark, there was one door. It says, if you want to be saved from this flood, if you want to be spared, there's one way, there's one entrance. For, for us, as sinners, there's one way to come to God. There's one way. And that is by admitting that we are broken, that we are guilty, that, that we are unable to fix ourselves, we're unable to pay for our own sin, but that Jesus did it for us. That Jesus paid for my sin. That Jesus heals the broken right? That Jesus declares the innocent guilty because of what he did in my place. The simplest way I can tell you the gospel is not I but Christ. It's not I but Christ. I couldn't do it. Jesus did it for me. But then this really cool thing happens. When we put, when we put our faith in Jesus, we don't just get saved from our sins. We actually become united with him the phrase that's often used in the New Testament, we're united with Christ. It's this mysterious thing where we get joined with Jesus and we get his life. We get his heart. Christ dwells in us. There's no identity-based distinction between us and Christ at this point in God's eyes. And now, because Christ is in us, we can obey God and we can love people and we can do the things that he's called his children to do. It's not I, but it's Christ in me. But it's, by, it's God's saving grace by faith that produces those works. It is not the works that earn his favor, his acceptance. I preach that every week until I die. So what's God called us to do? What, what obedience does our faith call us to? And I want us to check this out. Look at, look at for Noah, another insight from the New Testament. 2 Peter 2.5. God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Remember, it's, God, it's Noah, his wife, and their three sons and their wives. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. You see what's happening here. God has Noah go and warn the rest of the world that there's this flood coming. And I'd like to imagine, it's not here written, but I'd like to imagine if there were other people who believed that, 
that there was more room on the ark. Come on in, right? We don't know that. We're not told that, but I would wonder. Now, to be fair, this is sort of crazy. Think about what Noah's asking them to believe. There is very possible that up until this point, the many scholars believe that it had never rained. So they've never even seen rain. And here's Noah coming and saying, there's going to be this thing called rain, and it's going to rain so much that it's going to flood the world, and I'm building this gigantic boat. You better get on with me. Right? I mean, imagine if, some, if we were told, like, hey, jello is just going to start flooding the, from the skies and just cover the entire world. Everybody, jello flood, hop on my huge yacht. You know, people would look like you like you're insane. And, and, and so I wonder, I wonder, you, you and I, you and I have been called to a similar thing, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to tell the world that destruction is coming and there is only one way to be delivered through it, and it's through Jesus. And how many people that we share our faith with, because it's crazy, we're telling them to believe in this God that we've never seen, that we can never prove existed by tangible evidence, believe in them and how many people look at us and go flood schmud there's no god this is all a big fairy tale listen our job we're not anybody's savior that's not our job there's one savior our job is to love people and tell them the truth and it's between them and god as to whether or not they believe it are we living within a sense of urgency like noah did god comes to noah he tells him i'm going to bring this flood i want you to build this ark and i want you to warn other people Noah didn't go, okay, I got the message, God. Sounds great, but I'm in the middle of binge-watching this Netflix series. It's really good. When it's over, I'll start doing that, okay? Really busy time in my life right now, God, okay? Kids are young. They're pretty demanding. Can't do it right now. He gets to work. He builds the ark, and he warns the world of God's coming judgment. And I wonder, have, have we grown comfortable here? Have I grown comfortable here on this earth? I say, yeah, God, I'll get to it when things settle down for me. It's a really busy season right now. And listen, I'm not trying to be insensitive to the things we've got going on in our lives and the responsibilities, but, but I do want to say this. There is no greater, there is no more urgent task on this planet than loving the people that God has put in our path and telling them about their sin and about Jesus. And if we've constructed our lives in a way that we can, cannot tell people about Jesus, we need to make some changes. We need to make some big changes. And I'm preaching that to myself first and foremost. So God's solution is this flood, but it's to save Noah through this ark. And the last thing we see is God's secure promises. God's secure promises. So the, the flood does come. You know the story. It wipes out everyone on earth, except for Noah, his family, and the animals that join him on the ark. And then this water comes, and it comes from two sources, Genesis 7:11. All the waters, uh, underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. So we see that waters come from underneath the earth, but we also see that water's coming down from above the earth. And there are many, we talked about this in our creation message, about the canopy theory. That there's this huge kind of bubble of water. When we talked about the creation of the sky, and we said that he said there's an expanse, and there's water above the sky, and then water on the earth below the sky. And there's some who would believe in this flood that that canopy gets burst, and all of this, flood, this water comes crashing down, creating this flood. And we know that for sure. That's a theory. Completely changes the planet, our atmosphere, it changes a lot of things. But either way, Noah and, his an- and his, the animals and his family, they spend over a year on this ark. Can you imagine that? And at the end of it, and I love this in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. 
I love that. He doesn't, and I don't think it means God remember like, oh, who, there was somebody down. Oh yeah, there's Noah. How you doing, buddy? God never forgot Noah. He paid attention to Noah. He preserved Noah faithfully. And he remembers him. And, and then as the floodwaters recede and this, and this dry land appears, they're able to walk on it. I remember in 2004, I had hip surgeries. And for over a year, I was on crutches or in a wheelchair. And I remember at the end of that time, when I was at last able to put the crutches down and take that first step. And I'm like, I am never taking walking for granted again. Walking is amazing. Now, of course, this day I take it for granted every day. But, but imagine what it would be like for, for Noah and his family to take a step onto dry land after over a year of being on that ark. And can you imagine the smell, right? That had to be this crazy, stinky ark, and you had to be so ready to get off of it. But what Noah sees is that God has been faithful to him. He has, he has saved him through this flood. And he has preserved a line, a seed from the woman. And this deliverer is still coming. And the first thing he does is he thanks God for his deliverance. He doesn't forget the one who has saved him. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And there he sacrificed his burnt offerings, the animals and the birds that had been approved for that purpose. They brought two of each kind. Then they also brought some extra sacrificial animals to make an offering to God. And, and he's reminded here, we're reminded of that picture, that death is the payment for sin, that these animals are a sacrifice in the place of Noah. Noah is a sinner. He's recognizing that, and he offers this as a form of worship to God. And then I love God's response to this worship, verse 21. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. God accepts Noah's offering. Why? Because it did such a bang-up job. Man, the way you filleted that thing, the way you laid that thing out, that was amazing. No, he accepts it because it comes from a heart of faith, just like Abel. We, you and I, have one acceptable sacrifice. And Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ loved us and offered him himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. The only one that's pleasing to God. None of us can do anything to present ourselves pleasing to God. It was Jesus coming out of the water after being baptized. God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The only way we can worship God acceptably, the only way we can say thanks to God is through the work and person of Jesus. And then where I want to land the plane here, he makes a few rules, a few covenants in regard to life. First of all, he says, multiply life. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, repopulate the earth, verse 7, make babies. Make a ton of babies. There's only eight people now. He says, I want you to go back out there. I want you to fill this world with my image bearers. And then the second thing he says is sustain life. So multiply life and then sustain life. Notice this, verse 2 of chapter 9. All the animals of the earth will look on you with fear and terror. Why? I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grains and vegetables. Up until this point, man was on a strict vegetarian diet. And for the first time in human history, God gives man meat praise jesus right and then i love this he goes man now the animals are going to look on you with fear and terror why that cow imagine him looking over at noah and noah's like walking toward him slowly with a knife and a fork and a bottled bottle of barbecue sauce he's going what is going on here now all of a sudden we can eat meat but he makes an interesting point here in verse four he goes but you must never eat any meat that still has the life blood in it to drain the blood. Why? Because the blood symbolized life. 
He says, even though you can kill these animals, eat these animals now, I want you to drain the blood because I still want you to show respect for life. And it's not just toward animals. The third thing, he protects life. He's going to apply this toward man. We see the institution of capital punishment. He says, anyone who murders a fellow human must die. And he goes into some detail about that. And for the first time in human history, he didn't kill Cain for killing Abel. But for the first time, he institutes the idea of capital punishment. And I believe along with it, the idea of human government and enforcing that. And he goes, if, if you kill someone with your hands, you will be killed by the hands of men. And I know that's a controversial topic, but this is as far as we'll get into it. But here's why. Here's why he says, for God made human beings in his own image. You catch that? He goes, this is why. Because these are my image bearers. And an attack on a fellow man is an attack on me. God is the giver of all life. And he says, I am the creator God, and I'm the only one that has the right to give life and to take life away. So if you come in and take a life, you're trying to be God, and that is blasphemy. And he says, the result is that you will be killed as well. And then finally, he gives them life to enjoy. And he gives them, specifically, he gives Abram what we call the, or I'm sorry, Noah, the Noahic covenant, which is this. Verse 11, yes, I'm confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. So what he's telling them, he says to Noah's family, you can rest now, okay? When you see the rain coming, you don't have to freak out, okay? You don't have to start twitching because you see the raindrops and there's a flood coming. He says, I'm never going to wipe out everybody with a flood again. And to show you, to prove to you as a sign of this covenant I'm making with you, as you know, verse 13, I've placed my rainbow in the clouds. It's the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. This rainbow was a reminder to the people of God's faithfulness, and I believe it can be a reminder to us of his faithfulness as well. God here is not promising that there'll be no more storms, right? We've had a lot of devastating storms come since the flood. But what he's promising is he will never destroy us with a flood again. And when the earth's wiped out the second time, it's going to be with fire, not with flood. But here's where I want to leave us with. This verse in Isaiah 43, 2. He says, when you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what God's called you to. He told Noah to build an ark when there's never been rain. And I don't know what he's asking you to do, and it might seem insane. Or maybe you're in the midst of a flood in your own life. And, and all you can see around you is water, and it's been well over a year like Noah, and all you can still see is water, and it doesn't seem like there's going to be any respite from the storm. God has never promised us there will not be a storm in our life. In fact, he said, if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to be a hard and narrow way. But what he does promise is that he's never going to leave us. He's always going to be there, and you will not drown. God has a plan for us. He has a purpose for us, and he's going to complete what he started in us. And like Noah, will we cling to his promises as our God, even in the midst of the flood? Let's pray. Father, each of us come to this morning with different hang-ups, different problems, different sins. But each of us are equally as guilty in your sight as sinners. Each of us just is incapable of coming back to you. Each of us headed toward this flood. But God, just like Noah, there's one way, there's one door, there's one escape, and that's through the blood of Jesus. And I pray if there's anyone in this room this morning that has not placed their faith in Jesus and his finished work on their behalf, has not believed the gospel, that they would do so, that they would press into that, that they would ask the questions, that they would, that they would follow you, that they would come exactly as you've commanded by putting their faith in Jesus. 
and that we as a people would go boldly, have that sense of urgency that you've given us to go into the world and make disciples, that we would not get caught up, that we would not become complacent, that we would not focus on entertainment and and personal ambition, but that we would have one passion, that we will taste and see that Jesus is enough and simply tell the world about how sufficient he is. May that be what unites us. May that be what fuels our fire as we go out this week. That we would be a people that love Jesus and speak about Jesus in our work, in our families, in our friendships, in our sports communities. That we would go forth with this gospel. There's a flood coming. There's one way to be saved. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for saving us. We believe you. We, we, We trust you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.